verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that this inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Word of the Lord. Thank you, Nicole. I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are glad that you're with us um, this morning, we're continuing on um, walking through the book of 1 Peter, and this is week number two. So if you're uh, new to the church or what, this is one of your first times here, uh, I want to welcome you, but also it's a great time to jump in because um, we are starting um, this book. Only two weeks, this is only our second week into the book. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Father, I'm thankful as always for your word. I'm thankful that... Sunday after Sunday, when we come in this room, and whether we're singing or praying or reading or um, sitting under your word, that we don't, we don't have to um, think about what we're going to talk about or we don't have to think about um, whose authority that we stand on when we come into this place, that we know that it's all about you and your word and how you've revealed yourself to us in it. So I pray today as we look at your word, I pray that you would change our minds and you would change our hearts and, and how, what we feel and our emotions and that you would, always, that you would um, um, also change our will, what we do, how we live when we leave this place. More than anything else, I pray, though, that your son would be lifted up and that he would be made much of in this place. So help us. It's in your spirit and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that we most desperately want in life, especially when things are difficult, is hope. We all want hope. This is a, this is a human condition. This is a human desire that we all long for. This past week was, um, was a pretty challenging, a difficult week uh, for me. And I found myself, as I was preparing for this sermon and, and kind of living this week out, that I kept... Um, hoping, I think that was the words I was thinking, I was actually hoping that things would get better. I'm sure maybe some of you had that experience this week as well. I was, I was hoping that next week would be better than the current week, and the next day would maybe be better than the day I was in. But I really had no evidence, I had no foundation for that hope as I was thinking those words. I, I really didn't know if things were going to get better. 
I had no, I had no proof. I had n- nothing that I could grab onto to say that, oh, this is going to get better. And I kind of realized as I got further into my prep and I began thinking about this text more and more that I was actually attaching my hope to my circumstances. That was what was really happening. And, I, and so I didn't really know if my circumstances was, were going to get better. I, I, I was hoping they were. I was kind of wishing they were. Um, and you could really say this, is, this was wishful thinking throughout the week. Maybe I, I used that word hope or I thought about hope, but I was really wishing that things would get better. And this sounds a lot like the definition of a popular definition of hope from an expert in uh, kind of the area of positive psychology, a guy by the name of Charles Snyder. says his definition of hope is this. It's hope is the belief that your future will be better than the present and that you have the ability to make it happen. It involves both an optimism and a can-do attitude. Another kind of uh, current expert on this idea of hope, and he studies this, is a guy by the name of Shane Lopez. He says very similar. Hope is the belief that the future will be better than the present, along with the belief that you have the power to make it so. And so hope is something that it has a, it has a time element attached to it, right? It's we want to experience or we want our, our current present to change, so we look forward to the, to the future in hopes that we will feel something different in the present, right? We're feeling something. Like this week, I wasn't feeling great about my circumstances, and I was hoping that even an hour from now, even 10 minutes from now, things would be different. And if I could count on the future being different, it would change how I felt in the present. So hope has a time element attached to it. But here's where I want to challenge the, these definitions that I've mentioned to you. Right? I want to challenge them. Because I would ask the question, what is the basis or foundation for hope? Because if, if we're just hoping again or, or, or wishing that things would change, that our circumstances would change, there's no foundation to that. There's no guarantee anywhere that any of us can say our circumstances will, will, will get better or maybe even they will get worse. We can't change our circumstances, right? Um, and not only that... When, we, when, it, when these definitions kind of propose that we have the power to, to make our future better, um, there's some wisdom in those things. I get it. But when we're putting the entire weight upon ourselves to cause our future to change, and that's what our hope is in, it just feels empty. It feels like it falls short because there's no foundation. So for the rest of the time today, I want to compare this view of hope, the kind of the view of hope that I've put out there so far, and I want to compare it to what God says about hope in Peter's letter here, 1 Peter. And it won't take long in this passage to get to the part here that Peter is going to really push up against kind of our current world's definition of hope, if you want to say it that way. But to catch us up a little bit on the context, because again, we talked a lot about context last week. Why did Peter write it? Who was his audience? And so this uh, commentator Karen Job sums it up well in her commentary on this, uh, this book, which he says it like this, which is that Peter's readers were experiencing various kinds of trials that were causing them varying degrees of grief and suffering. Their Christian faith was being slandered and maligned. Their social status, family relationships, and possibly even their livelihood were threatened. When one's Christian faith is criticized and even mocked, 
it is natural that one may begin to doubt the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why Peter, Peter felt compelled to write this letter. He felt compelled to, 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 uh, to, to minister and to serve his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the church by writing this letter, knowing the context with which they were living. And I think their context, like we talked about last week, is, is not a lot different than our context is becoming. This is relevant to us because it can seem like maybe we're getting marginalized a little bit in our faith. And if we really take stance for our faith and kind of walk and actually follow Jesus in our lives, things may get more difficult as time goes on. And so the question that Peter, I think, is trying to answer throughout the whole book, so including today, is that how do we live as faithful or elect exiles or sojourners in this world? That's, right, that's how Peter started the book in the, last two ver- in the first two verses of chapter 1 last week that we looked at. And now we're going to jump into verse 3. Here's something to kind of note about these 10 verses we're going to look at. This is one sentence in the Greek. So the, the English translators have tried to make sense of Peter and his weird style of writing and trying to put some grammatical uh, marks in there to help us read it, to help it flow in our English translations. But just know that like, this is one sentence in the Greek. Ten verses, Peter's just going. And he's just kind of comma, semicolon, you know, all this stuff. He, it it kind of drives some of you kind of grammar nerds crazy because he just won't put a period in there, right? So this is one sentence in the Greek. Verse 3, Peter starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he start, so he starts off with this statement of worship, right? The third verse in this whole letter He starts off with a phrase of worship. He can't contain himself. He's so excited about the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited to unpack, and he's going to spend the rest of his letter really helping them understand why he can say this, why he's being so worshipful, why he feels this way. Then he continues. He says, according to his great mercy. Right? This is according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter is highlighting this, this characteristic of God that is, that, that is mercy that is at the foundation of everything that Peter is going to say after this. This is the reason why we've been saved. This is how we've been shown all that we've been shown in Christ is through the mercy of God. Of God. Now, definition of mercy, if you've forgotten or maybe haven't thought about it in a while, mercy is basically we deserve something and God is withholding something we deserve. We deserve punishment left alone to our sin. We deserve death left alone to our sin apart from Christ. That's what we deserve. But through his mercy, God withholds those things and gives us something greater, which is his grace. Okay? But Peter here is highlighting his mercy. And then he says, he has caused us, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Notice who's the, that the verbs are, are, are pointing to there, right? God is the one acting. God is the one who's causing us to be reborn, to have this new birth. So God does something on the inside of us to cause us to believe, to cause us to want to profess faith in him. Right? He is the actor that we talked about last week, right? He's the one that brings salvation about. We don't cause ourselves to be born ourselves. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't do something to be born again, right? It's by the grace of God. Right? And so when we are saved, which Peter's describing as this new birth, 
Now we possess or have a living hope. According to his mercy, we've been born again. And the aim of that being born again is to this living hope. And those are the two words we're going to focus the majority of our time today on. Living hope. We have this living hope. This is why we've been born again. Now, how does this come about? Again, Peter's helping us here logically, this, this kind of chain of things, right? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through or by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is the kind of the aspect of the gospel that Peter's highlighting for us. Through the resurrection, through Christ being raised on the third day. This is vitally important to believers, right? If you don't, if, if you don't think the resurrection, or maybe that's a, a doctrine of God that you've forgotten about, we need to put that back front and center, right at the front. The resurrection is vitally important to our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we should be, above all people, pitied if Christ didn't really raise what wasn't really risen from the dead. If God didn't bring him back from the dead, we should be pitied. Our faith crumbles. Our faith amounts to nothing if Christ wasn't really raised. And Peter is showing, that, showing us that as well in his book here. One person I read this week was speaking about hope, not from a Christian perspective. And it was kind of an interview situation. And they were asking, how does hope, how do we have hope at the end of our life? Like we're facing death and we know it's coming. And how do we remain hopeful in that place? And I, got, I kind of got leaned in. Right? Okay, how, what are they going to say here? I'm really curious how they're going to say it. And they basically said hope in the midst of facing our death helps us die with dignity and respecting those around us who are surrounding us at our death. Again, like maybe, right? Maybe that's a fruit of hope that we have. And, and we should die with dignity and respect. I'm not saying that's important. But that is so shallow, like, that is so weak in that moment to not have any hope beyond the grave. Christians are offered, offered a hope that extends through our death into the next life. So when we're sitting there at death's door, we have something to grab onto. Not, man, I hope I'm, I hope I'm like being kind to people as I die. That just seems really weak and impotent when we really need power and comfort and purpose and hope in that moment. See, God causes Jesus to rise from the dead. And because our unity with him through faith, we're united to him. God makes us alive uh, with Jesus because he's alive. And so now, as we're living in this world, we're spiritually alive. But one day when we die an actual physical death, and if we have faith in him, it's through that faith we'll be made alive again with him through all eternity, staying united to him. And this is everything. This gives us hope beyond the grave. No matter how awful things get in this life, we have hope that we'll be united to Jesus throughout all, throughout all eternity. Why? Because we're united to him now in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. This gives us a hope, a living hope, as Peter describes it, that we can bank on. Not hope that rises and falls with our circumstances. And a hope that's extinguished like a candle as we die. No, it's a living hope that extends beyond the grave where we're united to him through all eternity. So our hope that is living is grounded in the past. And here's where I want to come back to that time element, right? We look back to the past that gives us an anchor. We ground ourselves in something that happened in the past that actually allows us to say, no, I know what the future holds. I know what the future holds. And that changes the way we live in the present. You see how all three tenses are involved there. 
But with most, most of these definitions that we get of hope in our world, there's nothing in the past to ground us. There's just kind of this squishy, I, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic. I, I, I hope things get better. I wish things would change. But there's no grounding there. There's no foundation to actually lean into that hope. There's nothing outside of Jesus that gives us evidence that things will get any better. You think about that, right? Like in your life, like, there, I mean, maybe time, we can say, oh, well, time, things usually get better with time. Maybe with some things, but maybe not. Things may not get better with time here on earth, right? There's, in this week, as I was walking through the week, I, that's what struck me as I was having this difficult week. I kept hoping and wishing internally that things would change, but I had no grounds for that. I had no foundation that my week was getting any better. And not to get too morbid, but when, when we, we want to speak truth here, um, but when we die, we will eventually lose everything we're tempted to put our hope in in this world, right? If not, bef- if not at death, it could happen before then. Think of your health. It'll eventually be gone. Money, it'll eventually be gone. Like, you're not going to be able to spend it anymore, right? Your stuff, you can't take it with you, as they say, right? Your loved ones, as hard as that is, we will say goodbye to all of our loved ones as we know them on this earth. We will say goodbye to all of them one way or the other. Everything that we're tempted to put our hope in in this world, it will be taken away from us. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 50 years from now. But it can and will be taken away from us. So this is the kind of hope, if we put our hope in those things, it's actually a dying hope. It's a hope that's, that's, that's trending down and at one point will be extinguished. This is why we need a living hope, a hope that doesn't die, a hope that lasts, that, that's alive now and extends all to eternity. Why? Because it's connected to Jesus. Tim Keller, one of my like dis, uh, not, not close-up heroes, but kind of from afar heroes, passed away this summer. And they were interviewing him because he, he got diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer three years ago, and kind of they knew it was coming. He was able to like mark his days. So there, he was doing all these interviews in the last months of his life. And they were asking him, how are you getting through this? Like, you know it's coming. Like, what's that one thing that you are grasping onto? And, and he said in all these interviews the same thing. He said, when Kathy, my wife, and I talk about this, and it gets sad, and there's tears, and it's painful, it's not, it's not happy. But the one thing that we keep telling each other, if the resurrection happened, if the resurrection is true, everything will be okay, right? That was their faith. That was what they were banking on. If this is true, if this element of the gospel, if this, what the scriptures say about the resurrection, and Jesus is alive, and Tim Keller was united to Jesus, no matter how I go, saying goodbye, people crying, tears, pain, all this stuff, eventually it will be okay. That's hope. That is hope that extends beyond the, the worst circumstances we can go through. So living hope, brought about through God's saving mercy, gives us a foundation to live as faithful sojourners in this world. Because remember, that's why Peter's writing this letter. He wants us to be faithful exiles, faithful sojourners, faithful strangers, aliens, foreigners, because we have our citizenship somewhere else, but we're still living in this world. But we have dual citizenship, you could say. <clears throat> so that's verse 3. That's the, that's the thesis. That's, that's the big point of this passage. Now, I'm going to run through the rest of these verses because the rest of these verses kind of support this main idea. Verse 4, what are we saved to or how does God keep us? To an inheritance. We get that because we've been born again, right? 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, he's telling the church. So our being born again, or our salvation, gives us also an inheritance. And as we think about this idea of an inheritance, it should give us hope. We have something waiting for us. We've experienced some of it now partially. We'll experience in the fullness of it in the future. Commentator F.W. Bear, I think is how you say his name, he says this about this particular verse. The, The play on words here that Peter uses, these three kind of verbs, is most effective Uh, The inheritance is untouched by death, that's the first one, unstained by evil, too, and unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. If we had time, we could do a whole sermon over just that uh, verse right there. There's so much packed into that verse, but it's just describing our inheritance. It's describing what will be waiting for us. And remember the context, right? This is written... Uh, in, in the Jewish world, there were, there were Jewish people and Gentiles, non-Jewish people reading this in the church. Especially for a Jewish person, um, this inheritance idea was super tricky. So I can imagine as Peter writing to them, remember, they, they started as a nation when God came to Abram, said, I'm going to give you this land, an inheritance. But all throughout their history, they've had countries come in, take over the country, move them out, push them off the land, um, take them into exile, punish them, go, kept captivity, all the things. So when an, when an Israelite for sure hears inheritance, they're kind of like, we are, now wait a minute, I've heard, we've heard this before, and we've spent half our existence wandering, half our, half our existence as a country exiled from our land that you told us was our inheritance. So this is why Peter's so persistent. Now this is different. This inheritance is different. So for us, as we're reading it, if you kind of think of an inheritance and that doesn't, that doesn't grip you, or, or, or maybe you've been burned in an inheritance situation somehow, maybe you kind of roll your eyes at that because that promise doesn't come through. Like this is why Peter uses these, these massive descriptor words to get us to understand this is a good thing. And it's kept. It's kept by God in heaven. Like nothing can get that inheritance. Nothing can take that inheritance from us because it's kept by God in heaven. And he continues in verse 5. Who by God's power, this is us he's talking about, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only is the the inheritance being kept for us, but our our, ourselves, we, we are being kept. We are being guarded by the power of God for salvation to be revealed in the last time. And this is just saying it's going to, we're going to fully experience that someday in the future. Whenever we die or Jesus comes back, we're going to fully experience our inheritance. And this speaks to the already but not yet nature of the tension of being citizens again in two places. We know where we're going. We find ourselves citizens of heaven, the kingdom of God, but we're also left here to be citizens of um, the United States or wherever the person is a citizen in this world. There's this tension here, but, that, but Peter's speaking beyond this tension to what is coming. So not only is the inheritance kept, we are being guarded by God's in his power, right? And this strengthens our hope. This increases our hope. This reminds us this is a living hope. This hope cannot be taken away from us. Then verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice. And most commentators think it can can be applied to what Peter's just said and also what's about to come. So kind of both sides is, in this you rejoice. We should rejoice in all of it. Then he explains, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is, this, it describes our experience here on, on earth, right? We, we, we grieve, but we also rejoice. And here's the difference, once again, between the kind of hope that the world offers and the hope the Bible offers. Because if you put your hope in your circumstances, then you will never be able to, to, to grieve and be joyful at the same time. It's impossible because your circumstances will determine whether you're grieving or you're rejoicing. And life becomes, as far as like your, if there was a hope meter, it's just up and down. If things are good, you're great. If things are bad, you're down. And life just is this roller coaster. And you, you look at this biblical hope, you're like, what does that even mean? But what Peter's trying to show us here is if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have faith, we can at the same time rejoice and be grieved by the various trials. This is what he's saying here. This is, this is to be expected. Peter's saying, expect this. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked or caught off guard when, when life is really, really hard. Like he's not pulling any punches here. This isn't, hey, your life's going to be great if you follow Jesus. No, no, no. He's saying, you will suffer. You will grieve things in this life, but you can rejoice through all of it. What does this mean? Because we have a living hope. We have this hope that we take with us that transcends our life, that we can grab onto, that we, re we can rejoice even in our circumstances, the negative ones. And then he goes on um, in verse 7 to say that, that this, this, this uh, trials, that the sufferings that we face actually test our hope. It tests our faith. It tests the genuineness of it. And gold at the time was the most precious metal, the most precious element. And so he says, your faith is even stronger than gold. Because gold, it purifies it when it's, when, it's, uh, when, it's, uh, when it's put under fire. But here, most commentators think he's referring to the, uh, the second coming when there's fire and God's judgment. But gold will eventually perish. Gold is strong. Your faith is similar to gold. The gold will eventually perish underneath cer certain circumstances. Your faith will never perish. Your faith will never perish. And the sufferings, the temptations, the hardships actually make your faith stronger actually help your faith. This is what we all want as followers of Jesus, for sure. We want a stronger faith. I know I want a stronger faith. And if we know that, okay, the way that's going to happen is through hardship, through suffering. And God has designed it that way. That, our, that our, what we experience, it's, it's not pleasant, but it's there to make our faith stronger, which produces a stronger hope. And this is almost the universal rule in life, right? Like the good things that you have in life Oftentimes, they either came through sacrifice, suffering, or pain. Just think of anything good that's happened, right? Those three things were probably present, or at least one of them. Pain, suffering, or sacrifice. Usually good things, the things we treasure in our life, they come with a little bit of hardship. And this is what Peter is highlighting here, that life is not always going to go the way we want it to. So if you've never experienced the testing of your faith, I would lean into that. You may be missing out on something. If your faith has never been tested, if you've never felt the, the pain of being in exile or a sojourner in this world, if you've never kind of been marginalized for your faith, I would lean into that. Maybe God wants to refine you. He wants to grow you in your faith and your hope by you experiencing that. And then verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And Peter's here just describing what faith is. We don't see him, but we love him. We believe in him. We rejoice in him. 
And ultimately, where does faith lead? It leads to the salvation of our souls. Look at verse 9. Um, it filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I want to highlight here that this is kind of the first time that we've clearly seen in Peter that he's connecting faith to our salvation. And those of you who are here who are not followers of Jesus, this is the point in time you need to lean in. And how you obtain salvation, how you are able to grasp this living hope is through faith. If you do not have faith in Jesus, then you do not have access to the living hope the Bible's describing. You don't. Because we've seen that it all comes through our faith. Faith in what? Faith in the person and work of Jesus. What Jesus has done on our behalf. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in our good works, not, faithful, not faith even in the church or something else. Faith in Jesus. That is how we obtain this hope. And how that happens is God begins, you, you hear a message like this, you hear the gospel, the good news, Christ's redemption, God begins to work inside of you. He begins to birth or, or, or produce some faith inside of you, and then you respond. Say, I believe. I believe. I, 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 it's, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired of looking to myself. I need something else. I need a father. I need someone to forgive me. I need some living hope. Right? This is how we call out and respond in faith. We'll get to more of kind of how we do that at the end. Let's look at verse 10. Last three verses. These are three really unique verses. I, I really like these verses. I wish we could spend more time on it. But we see two groups of people that Peter highlights here, that it feels like it's a little bit out of the blue. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets, there's the first one. Now he's talking about the prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So think Old Testament prophets, given the words of the Lord, right? And he's communicating them to God's people. Inquire, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So let me stop, pause for a second. So the way prophets got their kind of, the, there was something inside of them. The Spirit kind of provoked them, inspired them. The Scriptures call it kind of moved them along, inspired them to say the words that God wanted them to say. But they didn't really know the full extent. They were only able to see so far into the horizon of redemption. They just know, hey, I'm talking about a Messiah. Messiah's coming. This is kind of what he would do and look like. But they didn't know anything, a lot else about that. The, the prophets knew less, no, no, knew less than we do now about Jesus, which is crazy, which is mind-blowing. This is what Peter's trying to highlight here. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Like they weren't, the, 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 their messages weren't just for their own people. They actually extend all the way in the history of redemption to us now. Thousands and thousands of years sometimes in the future. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which angels looked along. There's the second group there, angels. Okay, so first off, these prophets, right? Um, they were serving us, and, and I can imagine they, they would have loved to know how all the puzzle pieces fit and hear the story of redemption that we have now. Like they were just talking about the Messiah, didn't have all the pieces, but now how much would they want to say, yes, okay, that's it. That's how it all makes sense. That's how all these things in Isaiah come to fulfillment that we read about Jesus. We know it's Jesus and we know what it completely looks like because we're on this side of his life, death, and resurrection. Then we have the angels come in here. Just the last kind of throw it in Peter does here. Things in which angels long to look. And the description here is like the angels, what are they? They're, they're, they're basically, they worship God and they're servants of God. 
They're messengers, right? And so they don't even know what has happened yet. That's what the scriptures communicate. Like they're in heaven, and it's like this picture. They're trying to peer over this tall ledge because they want to go, how's this, how's this going down? How's the, how's the history of redemption flowing, God? What's happening down there? How, Jesus, tell me what's more. Like they're longing to look at the things that we know through the gospel message. Like how privileged are we that we have a, a greater blessing than the prophets and the angels based off of what we know about the gospel, about God's grace, about his mercy. And so how, how magnificent is this news that we should treasure it, that prophets want to understand it more, and angels are just longing to look at how this is playing out. So before we kind of wrap up here, I want to, I want to address what happens when we fail. Right? What happens when we put our hope in something that doesn't last? Or what, it, what happens when we feel like giving up? This just isn't, I, I just can't do it anymore. I just want to give up on hope, give up on faith. Heaven forbid, give up on life. Or maybe you're just bitter because you've tried it all. I just can't hit anything. I can't pull that lever that gives me hope. I've tried it and I've tried it and I'm angry and I'm bitter and I just don't like life. And I'm not a, maybe I'm not a pleasant person to be around. Wherever you're at, I want you to remember verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power. If you're in Christ and you have faith in him, you are being guarded by God's power. Like in heaven, and your hope is as well. You have this living hope. Now, how does that come through faith? Now, faith, it's not, you may think it's how strong our faith is. No, we're not saved by how strong our faith is. You may think, well, is it how mature our faith is? We need to have like this mature faith and seasoned faith. No, Scripture never says that we're saved by how mature our faith is. The Scriptures are clear that the only thing that saves us is the object of our faith. Jesus. Not our strength, not how awesome our faith is. The Bible says it's like a mustard seed. It's like a really, really tiny seed that has this massive power. That's what our faith is like. So as long as you're just looking at Jesus and begging Jesus to give you hope and, and help and help you work through this, you're in the right place. You're in the right spot. You don't have to have all the answers. You can have bad days. Remember, rejoice while we grieve. There will be grief. There will be pain. But we need to fight and trust and sit before God and say, help me. Help my unbelief. Help me have hope. I trust in you. Help me have this living hope. Like, I'm just, I'm just hanging on to a thread here because I know you're the way. I know you're the, the foundation for our hope, my hope. I can't go anywhere else. I just want to encourage you with that this morning. So, how, so I want to give you one kind of way to kind of work through this this week. Um, I want you to put your current hopes, what you, what you are tempted to hope in, under a microscope. I want you to kind of put those things on trial. And here's, here's how I think you can do that. Get, a, get out your journal or sheet of paper. On the left column, write down, the things you put your hope in. If that's hard for you, then I would say, what are, you most, what are you most scared of losing? What produces the most anxiety in you? What makes you most fearful? Where do you spend your, your resources, your time, energy, attention, money? That's probably going to get you close to what you put your hope in. What would you say, if I lost this, I don't know if life would be worth living anymore? That's what you're putting your hope in. So write that down, and then, and then ask the question, what promises are they making? What promises is that area of hope making to you? What evidence in the past is that area of hope showing you that they're going to come through? Again, what grounding, what foundation does that area of hope have? Like, I guarantee you, everything can be taken away. 
if we put our hope in those things. Everything had been taken away. And then go on the right column, the right side. And I want you to write down kind of across from those things and compare those things to the reason why we have living hope in Jesus. Things like we have this inheritance. Just look at this passage. We have an inheritance. We're brought into a family. Jesus is alive now, and we're united to him in life, in his death, and now in his resurrection. And we have this living hope because of that. We always have hope no matter how bad life gets because we know where we're going to spend eternity. right? It's going to get better. No matter how bad life gets, if you're a Christian, it will get better. Maybe not in this life, but it's guaranteed to get better in the next life. Again, the hope here. Right? The hope that we would be a people who can, when we read that verse that Paul threw out in the Philippians that we just almost want to skip over because it's like, how do I do that, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Right? To walk around thinking, man, if I died, this would be gain. Right? If I died, this, this, this would be better for me when I die than it is right now. And that's the, that's the grounding of the hope, right? That's the aim. That's the ambition that we should have as far as we should say. No matter what we face in life, that's our battle cry. That's what we can lean into. To live as Christ, like I'm going to do the work while I'm alive. Why has me alive? But it's going to be so good one day to die as gain. So let's pray. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us get there. Uh, Father, this thing hope is, is so difficult because I know for me oftentimes it just feels like I'm wishing. I'm wishing my circumstances would change and my joy and my freedom. So much of it rises and falls on, on how much hope I have. And what I think the future holds. And so I pray you would help us. Those of us in this room who are struggling. I pray you would comfort. The hopeless. Those who want to give up. Those who want to throw in the towel. Those who think they've tried everything and nothing is working. Comfort. Comfort us with your spirit. For those of us who are looking to hope in other places that maybe we're content right now because we just don't need Jesus. I pray you would convict us. I pray you would break us of our dependency on other things. Because when push comes to shove, when we're put through the fire, those things will be proven that they're not going to give us the hope. They're not going to withstand the storms of life that we will all experience. As the disciples said, help us in our unbelief. We need it desperately. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.